Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, most of us have had the unpleasant experience of putting our name on the waiting list in order to eat a meal at a new popular restaurant. The next time you're waiting for an hour to have the hostess call your name, you might want to remember Damon Burrells. Located south of Albany, New York, Damon Burrells is a restaurant named after its owner and located in the basement of his home. Burrell's namesake is listed on several travel and restaurant websites as one of the very best restaurants in the entire world, but also one of the hardest restaurants to get into. If you can get on the waiting list of Damon Burrell's, here's a description from his website of what you get to look forward to. Quote, when guests arrive at Damon Burrell, Each are greeted and shown to their table by Damon himself. He gives a brief presentation, listing all the ingredients that have been grown on his 12-acre property and will be used in the meal. If you enjoy wines, selections are discussed and chosen from hundreds of labels. Hard liquors, mixed drinks, processed soft drinks, and coffees are not offered. For the next four to five hours, at a leisurely pace, Chef Damon cooks and serves a parade of approximately 18 to 20 courses of his native harvest cuisine. While serving the courses, he takes a few moments to describe the ingredients, preparation, and the origin with great passion. Some courses may be just a single bite while others may be comprised of more than 20 different tastes to experience. The current price to have a dinner at Damon Burrell's is $360 per person. That does not include beverages, sales tax, or gratuity. Now, if this exquisite dining experience interests you, I'm sorry to say that you'll have to wait a long time before you can even get on the waiting list. Burrell stopped accepting reservations in April of 2014 because his bistro is fully booked through the year 2025. Yes, 2025. Perhaps this is why New Yorker magazine calls Burrell's restaurant the most exclusive restaurant in America. However, there is a smidgen of hope, and yes, I chose that word on purpose. Some guests on the waiting list get to see their perseverance rewarded with a one-off private tasting as Mr. Burrell's schedule allows. We don't like to wait for things, but we're willing to wait if we think it's worth it. And with the Lord, it always is. That's the recurring testimony from all the saints of Scripture, including David. And that's who we're going to be hearing from 
this morning as we continue our series in the book of Psalms called Dear God. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm chapter 13 or Psalm 13 and pull out the sermon note handout that you received in the worship folder when you came in. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and we can loan one to you. Our ushers will bring one to you. We don't want you to feel embarrassed about that, but uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along. If you're visiting today, we're glad that you're here, and I hope you feel warmly welcomed. I want to encourage you to stop by the information table before you leave so you can pick up a gift on your way home today. The key verse for our series uh, this fall is, comes from Psalm 34, verse 4. It is one short verse, but it says a lot about prayer. Uh, if you haven't already underlined it or highlighted it in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, it's on the screen behind me, but also on your sermon handout. Psalm 34, verse 4, uh, David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. The book of Psalms is an ancient hymn book, first of all. It contains 150 songs from a handful of authors that were used by Hebrews, the, the ancient Hebrews, in their worship services. The title of the book of Psalms, in the original language, uh, literally means book of praises. Uh, however, the Psalter, as it's sometimes called, uh, also serves as a personal prayer journal for some of the godliest people that ever walked on this planet. It contains personal prayers of praise, agony, lessons learned from the Lord. There are also prayers for rescue, prayers for healing, prayers for blessing, prayers of repentance, and much more. Someone once said that prayer should be as natural and frequent for the soul as breathing is for the heart. I think we would all agree with that statement. However, I have found in my own prayer life that the hardest part of prayer isn't praying. It's waiting for an answer. Thankfully, we're not the only ones that struggle with this. David did too. And we're going to look at one of several prayers this man, after God's own heart, wrote uh, in which he agonized over having to wait on God. Thus, our big idea today is this, and I call this the sermon in a sentence. If I could boil it down to one simple sentence that I hope you'll remember, it would be this. Waiting on God is worth the wait. It may not feel like it. In fact, it rarely does. But waiting on God is worth the wait. Although David doesn't mention when or where he is when he wrote this psalm, Sometimes he mentions it in the superscription. Uh, it's most likely that he wrote it during the eight to nine year period in which he was on the run from King Saul. And if you uh, want to get a little background on that, you can just jot down in your notes or maybe in the margin of your Bible, just First uh, Samuel chapter 21 to 31. That's the, that's the backstory in the Old Testament when David was being uh, pursued and Saul was trying to kill him. You might remember me mentioning last week that there are six types of psalms that uh, we're going to be looking at in this series. 
This particular psalm, uh, 13, is classified as a lament. And it's called that because it's a complaint to God mixed with a desperate cry for help. Lament psalms basically say, my life stinks, God doesn't care, and I just want to die. That's, that would be my paraphrase of a lament psalm. And most of them have that pattern, actually. Psalm 13, I think, you know, is unique in that it answers the question, how do I pray while I'm waiting on God? So if you would look at the text with me in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, David writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Here's point number one on your outline. The first truth I think we can glean from this passage is that sometimes the Lord puts us in a waiting room. Sometimes the Lord puts us in a waiting room. How long, O oh Lord? It's a question that David asked four times in the first two verses. Now, please don't miss the anguish and the emotion that's bleeding off the text here out of his heart. How long suggests a deadline that has been delayed, uh, an expectation that's been unmet, and no signs of movement on the horizon? It's a quantitative question that asks for a limit to be set on something that has so far been unlimited. How long is what a patient asks the doctor after a fatal cancer diagnosis reveals that there isn't much time? But in this case, it's the question that David asked because he felt there had been too much time that has passed. And so he's asking, how much longer is it going to be, Lord? before you show up and do something. Notice also in verse 1, he says, How long will you hide your face from me? This is what scholars call an anthropomorphic expression. Yeah, say that three times in a row real fast. An anthropomorphic. It means, in other words, uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a Bible interpretation term. In other words, David's using language normally used to describe the behavior or qualities of people, and he's using it to describe God. That's anthropomorphisms is what those are. The Bible's full of them. For example, uh, when David writes in other Psalms, Lord, incline your ear to me. He's not saying that God actually has physical ears like you and I do. He's saying, Lord, lean in and listen closely to me like a friend would, a human friend. That's an anthropomorphism. In this particular situation, David feels like he's been doing his part to seek the Lord's face for direction and for deliverance, but he feels like God is hiding or running from him like a human would. Somebody that wants to avoid having to answer his questions. It harkens back to the game of hide-and-seek that most of us played when we were young children. The object of the game, obviously, was to 
hide so that you weren't found by the seeker. And the metaphor here is that God is hiding his face so that he can't be found by David. And this metaphor of hiding his face is one that comes up a few other times in, Psalms, in the Psalms. And it, it often communicated or signified alienation, separation, or cursing from God. So whenever that phrase comes up, and it comes up a few other times in the Psalms, uh, that God was hiding his face, it's, it's, it's God's people saying, we feel like you've alienated us, you've, you've separated yourself from us, or you're cursing us, God. On the other hand... Another metaphor that's used to describe God's presence is the shining of his face. And whenever the shining of God's face upon his people is mentioned, it's seen as a sign of his presence, his comfort, and blessing. In verse 2, David says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? The NIV renders this, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And that's a, that's a good rendering. David was describing the inner turmoil that was going on in the night as he tried to sleep. The circumstances that he was in were keeping him up at night. As he tried to think of, what did I do to get in this situation? Did I do something wrong? He maybe replayed the, the videos of his, the last few years to see, did I make a wrong move somehow? Or, or did I somehow upset the Lord? And he also was probably thinking, how can I get myself out of this? Is it, can I do this? Could I go here? Could I ask this friend? Could I maybe do this? And he found no help. And he found no solution. So then in verse 2 he says, I have sorrow in my heart all the day. So in other words, David couldn't sleep at night because his mind was constantly running with how did I get in this situation? How do I get out of this situation? So his nights are sleepless and his days are restless. He's very depressed. And he's very lonely. His life was a perpetual cycle of sleepless nights and restless days. This chapter 13 of the Psalms, this prayer in particular follows a three-pronoun structure that scholars have observed are very common with lament psalms. A, a good, and this is a great way to sum it up. And they, they basically, if you remember your English from uh, high school, uh, there's a progression from the first person singular to second person to third person plural. And it goes like this. And it's in here, it's in Psalm, chapter 13, and it's in a lot of other psalms that are laments. I am hurting, you don't care, and they are winning. That's what David's saying. I am hurting, you don't care, God, and they are winning. The Lord had David in a divine waiting room. So what is a divine waiting room? I like to define it like this. It's a God-ordained season of inactivity from which you cannot escape. It's a God-ordained season of inactivity from which you cannot escape. 
It's a season in which you feel your life is stuck and you can't get unstuck. You can't get a job if you needed to save your life. You can't get healed even if you ate like a professional athlete. You can't find a spouse even if you look like a supermodel. You, you can't get an answer to prayer even if you could buy an answer to prayer. It's a season in which you need God to do something, but God's doing nothing. And it's prolonged. It's prolonged. It drags on and on and on. It's as if you are handcuffed, your ankles are shackled, your bottom is parked in a jail cell, and the key has been thrown away. You can go nowhere. You can't move forward, you can't go back, you can't go left, you can't go right. You are stuck until God lets you out. Have you ever been in a divine waiting room? If you haven't yet experienced this in your walk with the Lord, allow me to give you a heads up. At some point you will. So take good notes today. You're going to need these notes in the future. All of God's dearest saints, from Paul to Moses to David and on, have been put in a waiting room for more than one season of their lives. So this all begs the question, why does God make us wait on him then? Well, if you've ever flown a commercial airliner before, you probably have experienced being in a holding pattern as you wait to land at the airport. Circling an airport in a holding pattern while on a crowded, cramped plane is a it's an excruciating experience, especially if you have to use the restroom, right? Or if you're hungry, or if you've got relatives waiting to pick you up, or maybe you have a connecting flight you've got to grab, and you're stuck on the plane, you're looking out the window, there's the airport, that's where I want to be and where I need to be, and I can't get there. You're just circling. You don't know why. You're not hearing the communications between the tower and the captain. There are a multitude of reasons why air traffic control might ask your plane to circle the airport. And you know them, but they're not very comforting when you're actually in the plane. <laughs> For example, there might be a dangerous storm that needs to pass before you attempt to land. So it's for your own protection that you're not given clearance to land. Or the plane might not be ready to land because uh, some, in some cases the plane has to burn off more fuel so that the landing gear is not damaged. Or the terminal may not be prepared for the arrival of the plane or it may not be available because maybe another plane's at that terminal and it needs to leave to open up a terminal for your plane to, to, to park. Well, in a similar sense, there are a multitude of reasons why the Lord might put us in a holding pattern. There may be a danger that needs to pass before we land at our next place. We may not be prepared to land yet. Or the place where we're going to land may still need to be prepared. 
So how do we apply these first couple of verses here? We want to be doers of the word here at Vanguard, and I always try to ask the question, what is God's word calling us to do, encouraging us to do, or telling us to stop doing? And here's, here's one that comes to mind, one application. Uh, remember your impatience in how God sees time. I think this could help when you're in a holding pattern or in a waiting room. Remember your own impatience and how God sees time. Our inherited sin nature makes us all prone to impatience and impulsivity. We want what we want, and we want it yesterday. This is made worse by the fast-paced, instant, high-speed internet world that we live in. And then if you mix into the fact that if you mix in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, this is where it says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. In other words, what seems like an eternity to us only feels like a minute to him. Like a five-star chef, the Lord doesn't care about the time because he's more concerned with the end result. And so his mindset is, however long it takes, it takes to accomplish my work in you. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 as David continues his prayer He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God, and light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here's number two on your outline. Prayer can sustain us in a waiting room. When you're in a holding pattern, Sometimes prayer can feel like the last thing you want to do, but it's the first thing you must do. So you'll need to fight your flesh on this. You may even be mad at God because he has you in a waiting room, and you may not understand it or like it, but you need to pray. David did this because it was the only thing he could do, and he realized that given his circumstances. He prayed to the only one that could help him. And we should do the same when we find ourselves in a waiting room. In fact, sometimes the Lord puts people in a waiting room just to get them to pray because they haven't prayed in a long time. I've seen that happen. In verse 3, he says, light up my eyes. Some translations render this revive me or restore the sparkle to my eyes. Some have interpreted this as David asking for the ability to see or understand what God is doing. Others have interpreted this as David asking the Lord to extend his life because he was near death. And so the, another metaphor that's common in the scriptures is to the dimming of the eyes or darkness setting in. It's a, it's a metaphor for death, whereas light is a metaphor for life. Both are probable here. Then David lists some motivations for the Lord. Notice in in verse uh, 
In verse 4, he says, lest my enemies and, and, and lest my foes, he's, he's trying to communicate to the Lord, Lord, you've got some skin in this game here. Your reputation's on the line, Lord, here. If you don't show up, God, if you don't intervene, my enemies are going to celebrate the fact that they beat me and they're going to mock you. So, Lord, your reputation's on the line. The reformer Martin Luther once said this about prayer. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of God's willingness, his willingness to help us. So the application, I think, is pretty simple. When you're in a waiting room, press in through prayer. Don't, don't put distance between yourself and the Lord because you're mad at him that he's not working on your timetable, your schedule. Instead, press into him. Seek his face. Grow. If the Lord has you in a waiting room, then make the most of your time by getting on your knees as often as you can and cry out to him because he wants to help you. He can help you, and he will help you. Get as close to the Lord as you can through prayer. Ask him to do the work in you that needs to be done and for the grace to persevere while he does the work. We don't like to wait for things, but we're willing if we think it's worth the wait. And waiting on God is always worth the wait. Let's look at verse 5. So you press in and through prayer because... Prayer can sustain you in a waiting room, but let's look at verse 5 and see what else we can learn from David here in this waiting room, this holding pattern. He says, there's a pivot here, notice, but I, and I've said this before in our studies of the scriptures, uh, the word but, the conjunction, implies that there's a change of thought. There's going to be a contrast that follows based on what came before. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Here's number three on your outline. Faith can give us peace in our waiting room. Faith can give us peace in our waiting room. Waiting rooms are not known for being calm, peaceful places. Normally, uh, say if it's at the dentist's office or the doctor's office, normally we're anxiously anticipating what's going to happen to us once we go in the back where the nurses and the doctors are. What are they going to do to us? You might even hear screaming children or something back there and drills and machinery working if you're at the dentist's office. But verse 5 here, it reveals a dramatic shift in David's mood from despair to trust. It reveals a decision by David to get on top of his emotions. And so he says, but I. Even though he didn't know exactly what God was up to, he, he rested his heart on what he did know. And he knew from the scriptures that God loved him with an unfailing love. Oswald Chambers once said, if you really desire the peace that surpasses all understanding, then you have to give up your right to understand. So 
So what can you do when you're in a waiting room? Well, it doesn't have to be wasted time. So I wanted to give you a few practical subpoints here of pastoral counsel, some things I've learned in my own life and some things I've learned from reading other godly people's works on this topic of waiting. Here's A on your outline. You can minister to people, minister to people that need you while you're in the waiting room. <laughs> there almost always are people that God's put in your life that need you when you're in a waiting room. And when you're waiting on God, it's easy to become self-focused and self-absorbed. One of the ways to counteract this sin pattern is to look for opportunities to minister to others, to get outside yourself, to get outside your circumstances, to use your gifts and talents to bless somebody else. Your season of waiting can be a very fruitful time of ministry if you're willing to be used by him. Here's letter B. What else can you do while you're sitting in the waiting room? You can meet people you'll need to know after you get out. You can meet people you'll need to know after you get out. See, there almost always are people that God's put in your life that he's going to use after you get out of the waiting room, after you get out of the holding pattern. Some people want to withdraw from fellowship when they're hurting and they're suffering and they're disappointed and discouraged with the Lord. But this is one of the worst things you could ever do. Because then the adversary can really get traction and work on you. Not only do you need the encouragement of other believers when you're in such a season as this, but the Lord may also providentially use the relationships you make in a waiting room in the future. Here's letter C. The third thing you can do while you're in a waiting room and you feel like there's nothing else you can get done is you can grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. You can grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. A common pattern that exists in the scriptures that is not often mentioned is how God uses solitude to grow depth in the walk that people have with him. It's in David's life, it's in, it's in Paul's life, in Moses' life, and on and on and on. They have seasons of solitude where God isolates them and puts them sort of in a spiritual crock pot to cook them. And during that season of isolation, that season of, of quiet obscurity, they are growing deeper in their intimacy with the Lord. And they are being prepared for what God is going to use them to do in the future. But they couldn't do that until they spent a season of obscurity in a holding pattern, growing, where God puts things into that person's soul and purges things out that aren't pleasing to him. So when you're in a waiting room, it's easy to focus on all the things you can't do, like change your circumstances, change the people that you don't like, that are driving you crazy. But instead, I want to encourage you to focus on what you can do. And one of the things you definitely can do in a waiting room is grow. You can grow. You can spend more time in God's word and in prayer. 
You can read Christian books on the issues that you're struggling with. You can seek counsel from godly believers that, that have been through what you're going through. By God's grace, I have done this in a couple seasons in my own life when I've been in a holding pattern, isolated or in obscurity. And by God's grace, I've been convicted by the Spirit to just grow and go deeper and grab good books and, and study and learn, okay, this particular subject, what does God's Word say about this? And I want to learn from some godly people what I need to know and gain wisdom and, and grow and make the most out of that time so that I'm not wasting that time. So the application, if faith can give us peace in our waiting room, well, I think the application would be exercise faith by making the most of your time. You probably do this too. Uh, whenever I take one of my vehicles into the shop to say get an oil change done, I always take something with me to work on while I'm in the waiting room. Because I can't stand to just sit there and watch daytime TV, talk shows with strangers while my car's being worked on. And so I always take a book with me or take my, my laptop with me or something so I can get some work done and make the most of that time while my car's getting its oil changed. Well, just because the Lord might have your life on hold or maybe sometime in the future uh, have it in a holding pattern, it doesn't mean it has to be a wasted period of time. Instead, you should make the most of it so that you can look back once you're released. You, can look, you want to be able to look back on your waiting room time and be able to say, man, that was hard. and Man, it really stunk. But man, I really grew. I grew faster in that period than I ever had in another time in my life. I saw expedited spiritual growth, and God did some things in me and worked in me like he couldn't have in just a normal season of life. Finally, let's look at verse 6. See how David wraps up his prayer. He says, now that he's made this transition of faith, that I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So here's number four in your outline, the fourth truth. Praise can give us hope in our waiting room. Praise can give us hope in our waiting room. Because he has dealt bountifully with me, some translations say because he has been good to me. There are a couple other renderings, but the idea is the same. By focusing on God's goodness to him in the past, David was able to find some things to praise the Lord for. For the Christ follower, you can do this by reflecting on your conversion. By remembering back to that time when you were lost without Jesus, without hope and without purpose in your life. But then the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, convicted you of your sin, and helped you understand the gospel, and helped you understand that Jesus loves you and that you needed to be born again. And so you repented of your sin and by faith chose to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. The change wasn't drastic right away, but there was immediate change. You sensed God's peace in your life. You were forgiven. 
You began to pray. You began to do things that you wouldn't normally have done before you knew Jesus. You walked with him. You saw prayers starting to get answered. And you saw signs of his goodness in your life. So you can start by reflecting on your conversion, but you can also look back on seasons where God was doing things and go, okay, if he did that in the past, then I know he can do it again. This is something that the psalmists do very often. They look back on God's favor in the past to encourage them in their present and to give them hope in the future. We talked about things you can do while you're in a waiting room, but you still might be wondering, what, well, still, I don't get what the benefit is waiting. I mean, why, should I, why can't God just do what I want when I want him to do it and when I need him to do it? Well, here's a, I thought you might ask that. So uh, here's, here's a, let's see, what do I have? Five quick things, five quick benefits of waiting on God. Quick survey of the scriptures here for you. So what does God promise to those who wait on him? Here's letter A. He promises honor. Psalm 25, verse 3, it says that no one who waits on the Lord will ever be put to shame. I think this verse infers the opposite of what it is stating. That instead of shame, those who wait on the Lord will be honored. It, it refers to those who mock the waiters, who, who uh, David often would mention them in his laments, uh, he would mention his enemies and how they were making fun of him because his God hadn't showed up yet. And so David's point in Psalm 25 is that, no, 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 they will be the ones put to shame. I will not be. I will be glad that I waited on the Lord. Here's letter B, another promise that God makes to those who wait, and that is Blessings. He promises blessings. Isaiah 30, verse 18. It says that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. That he will rise up to show compassion and will bless those who wait for him. It suggests that we can wait on God and be blessed or not wait and not be blessed. Or take things into our own hands and not be blessed. Let her see. Another promise that God makes to waiters is strength. Isaiah 40, verse 31. It's a very popular passage. You're probably very familiar with it. It's inspired the writing of several songs, and it's on a lot of greeting cards. Isaiah 40, verse 31, it says that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up on wings like eagles, and run and not be weary, and walk and not faint. It speaks to the Lord's willingness to help us get through difficult seasons of trial or waiting periods. Like a parent that helps a child lift something they are too weak to lift on their own, the Lord loves to help us go further than we could have gone on our own. He loves to help us lift burdens that we can't lift on our own. Here's letter D. The next promise that God gives to waiters, people that wait, is action. He promises to act. Isaiah 64, verse 4. It says that God acts for those who wait for him. What a powerful verse. 
While we actively wait for him, he actively works for us. Even though passengers on a commercial airliner cannot see the work being done on the ground at the airport or the terminal, and all the employees of the airport getting the fuel ready and the, the meals and, and the crew that comes on to clean the plane, there's all sorts of staff and employees moving around getting ready for the arrival of your plane. We can't see that, but we know it happens. And we believe it's going to be there when we arrive. And then finally, letter E, good things. He promises good things to those who wait. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. It's there that Jeremiah observed that not only is the Lord good to those who wait on him, but he also says it is good for us to wait. So application. Our final one for today. Praise the Lord even when you don't feel like it. Praise the Lord even when you don't feel like it. Praise can give you hope in your waiting room. And what you need to know about praise and about worshiping the Lord is that for most professing Christians in America, their worship is driven by their emotions. Emotions can play a part in worship, but they're not supposed to drive our worship. And the reason is, is that if you let your emotions dictate when and how you worship, when you don't feel like worshiping, you won't. And that is not what the saints of Scripture did. We see right here in Psalm 13 how David got ahead of his emotions and he chose to lead his emotions instead of letting them lead him. It's a key metric of spiritual maturity to be able to praise the Lord when he is not doing what you want when you want it. It takes maturity to lead your feelings instead of letting them lead you. But the believer who withholds worship from the Lord because he's not doing what I want when I want him to do it is like the child who says to their parent, I hate you because you won't give me what I want. So praise the Lord even when you don't feel like it. Well, what do I praise him for? Well, you can praise him for the same things that David did, his unfailing love. You can praise him for giving his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for your sin. You can praise him for prayers that he has answered in the past for you. You can praise him for the prayers that he's going to answer in the future that he hasn't answered yet. You can praise him that he's still with you in the waiting room, that he's not left you, and that he's not forgotten you. You see, Psalm 13, it can encourage us because it shows us that we're not the only ones that have had to wait on the Lord. And we're not the only ones that have struggled with it. And it can encourage us because it shows that God gives us permission to ask, how long, O Lord? This psalm and all the other verses I've shared with you this morning, I think, prove that there's no one in heaven right now that regrets waiting for the Lord. 
if anything, as they reflect on their life here on earth, they wish they had been more patient. And they wish they had trusted him more. We don't like to wait for things, but we're willing if we think it's worth the wait. Well, waiting on God is worth the wait. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that in a group this size, there, that, that this passage, this, this word is going out and landing on hearts that are at different places. There are some, Lord, here that have never experienced a waiting room or a holding pattern where they were just hemmed in on all four sides and couldn't go anywhere or do anything. And so for those people that haven't yet experienced it, would you help them to learn what they can from this message and from Psalm 13 and prepare them, Lord, so that when they are in the waiting room, when it does come, and you will do it, they are ready and they know how to respond. Lord, I know that there's another group here that are currently in the waiting room. They're, they're, they're in the holding pattern. And some have been for a long time. They've been praying and praying and praying and it just seems like their prayers are bouncing off heaven. Some need a job. Some need healing. Some need financial provision. Some need you to intercede in a difficult relationship. Father, please, would you, as David says, incline your ear to them and answer. Father, would you answer and would you bless and would you provide and would you heal? But also, Lord, I want to ask that you would sustain, that you would enable them to persevere in the waiting room. Lord, I want to ask, too, that you would, as, as Paul writes in, in Philippians, that you would finish the good work that you've started in them. That you would make this current season of waiting and holding on and just sitting still the most profitable season in their lives. Lord, Lord, would you work in such a way that so, as, as the author of Psalm 119 said, it was good for me to be afflicted. Would you work in such a way that those who are waiting now could look back in the future and say, yeah, that was a tough time, but it was a, it was, a, it was a very rich, blessed time, too, where God did some very powerful things in our lives. Lord, as a church, corporately, we've been waiting for you to help us grow 
if there is anything else that we can do, would you please show us that? We want to be faithful and do our part to be outward focused, but also, Lord, we, we need you to do what only you can do. And so, Lord, as we wait, as we work for you, as we pray, would you also call people to Vanguard that can help pioneer this work? People that have gifts and talents that we need that can be used to strengthen and grow this church. In the meantime, we will trust you, Lord, that you are working. We will trust you, Father, that you have not forgotten us. And as David did in verses 5 and 6, we will praise you. We will worship you. We will love you. Thank you, Lord, for allowing David to record this psalm. It, in some ways, it doesn't make you look good. Thank you, Lord, that you are secure enough in who you are that you would let David put this down and it would be included in the Bible to see that here's somebody that struggles with you and is disappointed and you are okay with us seeing that. Thank you for that, Lord. That gives us hope. I pray this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.